0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies. I'm James Dorsey, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stephen Tankle about his new book, With Us and Against Us, How America's Partners Help and Hinder the, the War on Terror. Stephen Tankle, welcome to the show. James, thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to have you. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself personally your intellectual history
1: uh, absolutely so I am an academic at American University in the School of International Service I'm also a adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security uh, when I to talk about my intellectual history um, is is in some ways to really tell the story of how this book came about uh, when I returned to to do my PhD in the War Studies Department at King's College London, uh, I, I settled upon a topic that looked at at how uh, and, and really why jihadist groups, for lack of a better term, that were in existence at the time of 9-11 but organizationally independent from Al-Qaeda did or did not adopt its uh, global agenda uh, and, and I was you know very much focused on, on terrorism at the time, uh, and also primarily on the Middle East. I'd lived in Egypt, I studied language in Syria. But one of my three cases was in Pakistan. it was Lashkar taiba and I was just really fascinated by the group, uh, and, and they, of course, are the the group responsible for the 2008 Mumbai attacks, which took place. Uh, right before I made my first long trip to Pakistan and, and then to India for field research. And I came back with far more than I needed for a case study. So I, I ended up taking a break from my PhD. I ended up with far more on Lashkri Taiba than I needed for a case study for a PhD. And my supervisor encouraged me to put my my dissertation on hold and to write a book about LAT, which I did. And, and through that, I became much more involved uh, in Security issues in South Asia. So, you know, I, I didn't let the Middle East focus go, but I, I became very involved in in looking at at political and military and security issues in South Asia. Um, I finished the book. I, I finished my my dissertation, which remained on that subject, uh, and I started working at American University uh, when I finished my PhD. And I thought that I would turn my PhD into what would then be my second book. But I continued to work on South Asia, and that resulted in my being invited to come in and work as a senior advisor uh, at the Department of Defense in what is called the Office of the Under Secretary of Defense for Policy. So I was the senior advisor for Asia and Pacific Security Affairs working primarily on U.S. defense policy in South and Central Asia. And I had made a lot of progress turning uh, my book, which I thought was going to be primarily about how jihadist groups evolved and the influence of states on their evolution into into a book. Uh, But I came out uh, from that experience much more, I wouldn't say interested, but aware of the importance of partner nations in how we pursue our security policies, especially in the counterterrorism space, and how some of these partners can be very, very difficult, how they can simultaneously help and hinder our efforts. And I thought that was both a more interesting question uh, by 2015 when I came out of DoD uh, and a a more important one from a policy perspective. So I had about 80% of my my book done, and I called the editor-in-chief for... Columbia university press uh, uh, series on terrorism and insurgency and I, I said, you know i I'd like to start almost from scratch uh, and it's going to take me a couple more years to do it and to his credit, uh, it was Bruce Hoffman he said, you know you you should do what you think is going to be the the best book you can write uh, and so you know I'm still very much a terrorism person but uh, i'm I'm much I've become much more interested recently in, in counterterrorism, in security assistance and cooperation with other countries, uh, in the changing nature of alliances and partnerships themselves, and what the United States can do to get more out of some of its partners. Uh, and that's really at the heart of the book that I've written. Uh, and And I think you know very much, the title gives it away: With us and against us, how partner nations help and hinder the war on terror. The idea that a lot of uh, America's critical partners, in this case, in terms of counterterrorism, uh, are simultaneously helpful and hurtful. Now, that's true of any ally, but I think it is uh, much more true today with countries that are not allies. Um, you know, that are just partners where we don't have a treaty alliance, and it is much more true with issues like terrorism, where the threat is often external for the United States, but internal uh, for the country uh, that, we're, that we're dealing with, um, and where the solutions are not just military, but also very often go to the heart of, of the, the nature of a country's polity. Uh, and so that's sort of where I, you know, a, a lot of where my research is going today.
0: I mean, you obviously have the great advantage that you've both looked at this as an academic, but also as a government official, and have therefore seen uh, both sides of the coin. I mean, what strikes me, and it's, it's an excellent book, and congratulations on that, what, what, what strikes me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that there really are, I guess, three underlying themes in a sense, in terms, when you look at cooperation with countries that have been problematic, uh, like Pakistan, like Saudi Arabia, are problematic at least from a, from a US perspective. Uh, one is just simply, what is terrorism? Definitions of what is terrorism? And uh, definitions of, in terms of using violence or force, and whether or not that has to be exclusively uh, a state organization, uh, with other words, a military, an intelligence service, a law enforcement, or whether uh, non-state actors are legitimate actors. The second thing that I think comes out of this book is just very different perceptions. You know, you talk about the paradigm shift post-9-11, where, where the US perception of political violence terrorism changed, but it didn't change on the other side of the uh, 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 of the equation. And the third thing that struck me, and this may be my conclusion, was that to really not only manage the partnership ultimately, but also to try and resolve problems you're really talking about resolving either uh, domestic issues or interstate relations, for example in the in the case of India and Pakistan, but that strikes me as the three really underlying themes of the book that you then illustrate extremely well in case studies. thank you, yeah, so
1: I think those themes are, are definitely prevalent uh, and you know it, it's it's always great for me to hear how other people have interpreted sort of what I was trying to 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 put forward and I, and I think the the three areas you identify uh, get get at the heart of a lot of that. and I I, I I would take each one in turn. The first is for me, you know the definition of terrorism is is something when I when I teach my students, I always tell them you know in the the class that I teach on terrorism and counterterrorism, that we are not going to spend the semester trying to define terrorism because people have been trying to do that for decades upon decades and nobody can come to agreement. The United States government can't even come to agreement within itself over what terrorism is. Um, and so I think that's been an issue that's been with us for a long time. Uh, what I, what I, One of the things I think I was trying to put across was the idea that the, <coughs> excuse me, One of the ideas I was trying to put across in terms of the definition, you know, when when one talks about definitions of terrorism, and I didn't get into it too much uh, in terms of the definition itself, was the broader idea that this is political violence. Uh, And I, I, you know, I have a line in there that is, and I'm, of course, paraphrasing. You know, that essentially says when we talk about counterterrorism, we tend to get caught up in the mechanics of it. We tend to think about this very mechanistically. But it's important to remember that what we are trying to counter is political violence. The reason why we've had so much trouble defining terrorism is because it's such a a political hot button problem. Uh, You know, terrorism is, is... is something that 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 is is so hard to define because of the politics that are wrapped up in it and yet we sometimes think about counterterrorism as if it it could be sanitized and devoid of politics and so one of the things that i was really trying to put forward is that counterterrorism for all the um, the importance that 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 can and should be placed on professional communities working together um, and relationships between intelligence services and militaries and diplomats and what have you that ultimately this is a political issue if we 're going to counter terrorism, politics is going to come into play, and we cannot escape that um, so that really for me was a really big theme and i and I think that your point about the definitions of terrorism and violence. Um, you know is a very important piece of that. The the second uh, theme that you identified, I, I think, is spot on, and, and is that issue of perceptions. And you know, one of the things I write about is that the United States tends to be very, very focused, understandably, on its own threat perceptions, and so it sees a terrorist group and it spends a lot of time doing threat assessments to decide what kind of threat that group poses and and how big a threat it poses, but then very often what what I've seen happen after that and and people I've spoken to in in other policy positions have, have affirmed for me is that when it comes to looking for cooperation from partners, the United States will have assessed the threat and then goes to the partner and says, here's what we need or here's what we want, and here's what we're prepared to give you in return for that. But what we don't do is spend nearly enough time, at least in my opinion, trying to to account for how the partner perceives that threat, and I get into different ways in which that's problematic uh, you know w- in my writing in the book. One of them is that it, it we straight up can 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 disagree over whether or not a group is a threat. We can disagree um, you know uh, over over whether or not a group poses a a, a threat internally or externally. Uh, I would point to Pakistan and the way it views groups like Lashkar-Taiba and the Taliban, where it sees these groups as allies and we see them see them as threats. That's a, a really wide variance. But even in areas where we share threats, where the United States shares threats with other countries, there can be divergences. Um, and as I note in the book, U.S. counterterrorism policies write a lot about shared threats and this idea that we should be able to cooperate with another country if we share a, a, a threat from a terrorist group with them. But my point is, it's not just how you, it's not just whether you share that threat, it's how you prioritize that threat relative to other threats, and it's how you perceive that threat. And I think, you know, Yemen under the regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh is a really good example. Uh, Both the United States and the Saleh regime shared a threat from AQAP, but for the United States, that was by 2010, the biggest terrorist threat in the world. Uh, For Saleh, it was a distant third to the threat from Houthi rebels and from a separatist movement in southern Yemen. Saudi Arabia is another example. No question that since 2003, uh, at least, The United States and the Saudis have shared a threat from Al Qaeda, but at various times the Saudis have been considerably more concerned about the Iranians than they have about Al Qaeda, and and all of that is going to impact the type of cooperation that other countries are going to provide to the United States, and the type of cooperation the United States is going to seek from other countries. The ISIS coalition, I think, is another great example. You had all of these countries that came together that agreed that ISIS was a threat, but if you look at some of the key players, the Saudis were arguably more concerned about Iran. The tur- the Turks were are arguably more concerned about the Kurds. Um you know a lot of the different countries involved didn't prioritize the ISIS threat. And so while the coalition was able to make progress rolling ISIS back militarily, now you're seeing that coalition fraying and may not be able to sustain those gains because the other threats they were more concerned about are rising to the fore. And I would go even further and note that even where the United States and a partner can agree on the prioritization of the threat, they may perceive the threat differently. This is a, 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 a podcast on new books in the Middle East, Egypt, you know, arguably one of the key players in the Middle East uh, and a, and a critical counterterrorism partner for the United States. The United States and the Egyptians can agree on the jihadist threat in terms of priorities it 's a top threat for them it 's a top threat for the United States. but for the United States, that threat does not include at least from a policy perspective the Muslim brotherhood and from for the Egyptians, it most certainly does, and so they perceive that threat differently and the way the Egyptians are going about counterterrorism, I would argue um, is ultimately bad for them uh, and by extension you know could potentially be bad for the united states so so even those threat perceptions are, are important and I think your final point um, you know about both the domestic and the international aspect is spot on and, and that's something that's changed since since 11 um, The United States is now both more interested in the domestic affairs of many countries and uh, longstanding regional conflicts like the conflict between India and Pakistan uh, or you know the 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 conflict um you know even the you know the sort of the, the the although it doesn't rise to the same level the conflict between Saudi and Iran or the competition between Saudi and Iran all of these now have greater uh, bearing on the cooperation that the United States can get from other countries and how other countries are going to behave vis-a-vis terrorist threats um, and, and that's real difficult because the United States is now asking more of its partners than it ever has in the past when it comes to counterterrorism. And I think one of the challenges for the United States is recognizing where it's going to be able uh, to to get useful cooperation that is sustainable and and where it's not and where it's going to have to be pragmatic uh, and and, maybe sort of take half a loaf of bread rather than, than hoping for the whole loaf. And for me optimizing cooperation where it's good, mitigating it where it's bad, knowing where because of domestic politics or because of a long-standing regional conflict, you're not going to be able to get the kind of cooperation you want. And then getting the most out of the trade space in between where cooperation is good and where it's not good begins with knowing what to expect from partner nations. And, and, and so that for me was really the, 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 the critical question that I was trying
0: to answer. It strikes me uh, several things. One is, very fundamentally, what this all really means is that cooperation really can only be successful in a relatively narrow band. And it also seems to me that that's problematic, particularly if you take countries like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, which has long had as its basic ideology and, 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 and social and, and, and cultural and religious system, a very ultra conservative, uh, austere interpretation of Islam, even though that is changing. Or a country like Pakistan, where about, because of a, a long history of struggling with is, you see that ultra conservatism and ultra conservative attitudes are, are really woven into the fabric of society and the fabric of institutions. In, uh, including very crucial institutions of the state. And while ultra-conservatism not, is not, by definition, violent, uh, it often does create this this, uh, this environment of intolerance, of maybe even supremacism, uh, and therefore, potentially, when several things come together, uh, becomes a breeding ground. So that, in a sense, I think you know, also complicates the whole issue of of, of counterterrorism uh, and narrows the band in which uh, in which uh, you can cooperate. The other thing is also that you know, in a lot of these states—Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan—for the longest period of time, they def- definitely wanted to cooperate with the United States. Wanted. Uh, Close relationships with the United States, and yet a popular sense of anti-Americanism was also something that was very convenient for them, and they used that in terms of uh, legitimizing their regimes.
1: Yeah, no, I, I certainly taking that that last point first. There's no question uh, that the that cooperation with the United States is is. Often not popular. It's something that governments do because they want to maintain those relationships with the United States. It is not popular on, you know, to, you know, to you to the, on the so-called street, uh, and and it's certainly the case that in in some of these countries, uh, governments or security services or militaries, in the case of Pakistan, deliberately stoke that anti-American sentiment. Uh, you know with one hand while cozying up to the United States, you know, on the other hand, um, and, and that's done for a variety of reasons. It, it's, it, it helps them sort of put off, uh, tough requests cause they can point to, uh, you know, anger on the street. No, we, you know, we, we can't, we can help you on this area, but we can't help you on that area because it's going to anger our population. Um, but i would also say it's the case that 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 sometimes you get cooperation that is quite good but hidden because of anti-americanism that that in some cases again governments or security services have have stoked and in other cases have not uh one of the things that i note is that uh you know countries are more apt to cooperate on things like intelligence sharing or the provision of access for U.S. forces in small numbers, or for drone strikes in some cases, or for the transit of military supplies, or through a country's airspace, uh, either for supply or for airstrikes in another country. They're more prone to cooperate in those areas of access or in intelligence cooperation, or on things like rendition, uh, you know, which is the extrajudicial transfer of prisoners or access to detainees for several reasons. One, uh, and this goes to your point about that, you know, that anti-Americanism that often exists in the population, some of these things are just easier to conceal than other areas of cooperation. It's very hard to conceal conducting counterterrorism operations you know, by law enforcement or the military uh if you're if you're the 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 partner in question, right that's hard to hide. Um, it's very hard to hide joining a regional coalition. Um, but it's much easier to hide intelligence cooperation. Pakistan tried to hide its provision of access for drone strikes. It tried to hide the fact that it was providing a base to the United States for drones uh, until almost you know a decade after nine eleven. Uh, the Saudis were very quiet about their provision of a of a base for drones they were They are not advertising the intelligence cooperation they do with the United States. None of these countries are talking a lot about their participation in rendition uh, so these are all things that are easier to conceal. They are also things that are more in line with traditional bilateral cooperation. You can sign deals for access. Intelligence uh, services can have a long history of working with one another. Um, you can, in, you know, when, you are, when you're cooperating on detainees, it's very easy to have a quid quo quid. Pro uh, quo you know i have engaged, I've, I've, i 've you know done rendition and it provided this guy to you and you 've provided somebody to me, which is why the United States was able to you know, cooperate on rendition with Syria up until about two thousand and five. Uh, all of these things are are more tactical, they are more transactional, uh, and so they lend themselves to cooperation um, you know even in areas where threat perceptions aren 't necessarily as strong they are the areas where us instruments of of statecraft including the allure of that relationship that you are speaking about has the most value um but of course right as you noted that's not the that's not as wide a band of cooperation as the united states is going to want in many cases i'm not sure i would say that that Cooperation is always confined to narrow bands with these countries. But what I would say is that very often what you get is you get a, a, a positive band of cooperation and a, a negative band uh, where you know a country is engaging in behavior that is distinctly unhelpful. So Saudi Arabia, I would say the the band of cooperation on intelligence and access and Saudi's commitment to policing its own territory at least after 2003, which is when Al-Qaeda began launching attacks in, in the kingdom. All of that has been quite robust. I don't think that has been narrow by any means. But unfortunately, you know, while Saudi cooperation in terms of domestic counterterrorism operations, it, to include even efforts to combat terrorist financing, which although still far from perfect, are much more robust now than they were 15, 16 years ago, um, and intelligence cooperation, all of that there's there's been quite a lot there really you know uh, over the last decade and a half, but unfortunately at the same time the Saudis have simultaneously done a whole lot to export Wahhabism, uh, which you know although as you noted you know an ultra conservative uh, uh, you know brand of Islam is not you know, does not necessarily translate into terrorism has, I think, at the very least been the mood music to which a lot of the jihadists have danced. I mean, not for nothing that after ISIS took territory uh, and wanted to administer schools and didn't have its own books, it just used books from the Saudi system. Um, you know, so so the Saudis have been exporting, you know, Wahhabism uh, for decades. They have, you know, been encouraging people to go fight uh, on foreign fronts. For decades, uh, and uh, you know, and 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 more recently, they've been engaged in you know an intervention in Yemen, which arguably uh, makes the fight against AQAP more difficult. Although uh, recent reports suggest AQAP, uh, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, for those not familiar with the acronym, uh, haven't necessarily been able to take advantage of the conflict as much as some of us had feared. Um, so you know, I would say that sometimes you do get these narrow bands of cooperation, but sometimes what one gets uh, is broad cooperation in one area, and and and, but also really broad bad behavior in in other areas.
0: Uh, <clears throat> sorry, I, I think what I meant with uh, narrow uh, a narrow band, absolutely true. There is uh, cooperation, uh, and the Saudis have kicked in once it really became a threat to them with the al-Qaeda attacks in 2003-2004. But the question that is in my mind is to what degree that cooperation in some ways is fundamentally countered and maybe even neutralized by the broader issues. So you look at Egypt uh, where uh, there is actual uh, agreement on the priority of what's going on in the sinai for example but overall policy in egypt the degree of repression uh the inability to to deliver economically and socially it creates a, uh, a, a an environment in which you may get a generation that is has nothing more to lose you know, in Syria and Yemen, you have generations that are going to grow, you know, going to grow up hating, whether it's, uh, the Saudis, uh, or in the case of the Syrians, probably the rest of the world, uh, or you get situations like you had going back to, uh, the early 1990s in Saudi Arabia, where, uh, when you had U.S. troops there, uh, you had, uh, they hired militant Islamic scholars to, uh, to culturalize uh, U.S. soldiers, converted larger numbers of them to Islam, and then tried to de- dispatch them to Bosnia to fight with the, uh, with the Bosnian Muslims against the Serbs. So with other words, what you do with one hand, in some ways gets destroyed by the other hand yeah I, I think that's a hundred percent correct um and that's
1: the that is the paradox of these partnerships uh you know and and again i you know i go back to that idea that that all allies uh are helpful in some ways and hurtful in others, but it is just so much more exaggerated uh when the United States is dealing with countries that quite frankly uh you know it has very little in common with um you know in in, in many respects um you know, Some of these countries are long-standing partners uh, because they, they've been important for security reasons. Saudi Arabia is one of them. Egypt is another. Others are countries with, with whom the United States has formed partnerships almost exclusively for the purposes of counterterrorism. The United States had no security relationship with Yemen before 9-11. It had people there investigating the USS Cole attack, but it didn't have a real security relationship. It didn't have a real security relationship with Algeria. Uh Or with Mali, which are other countries that i that I write about um in the book and it it formed those for the purposes of 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 countering terrorism and and with these types of countries, I think you're absolutely right um that 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 much of what is is done uh good on one side is undone on the other, and that's really you know like i said i mean the 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 title gives it away, uh, you know, with us and against us, how partners help and hinder. Uh, and it is this idea that, that many of these partners, uh, you know, are, 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 or many of these partnerships are paradoxical. And, and then the, the key becomes uh, recognizing that, but also moving beyond it to say, okay, well, if that's the case, what can we expect? And how could we make the most of these? Uh, partnerships, recognizing that they are never going to be as good as the United States wants them to. And I think that's also important, uh, is to recognize that these partnerships are never going to be perfect. Um, It it is always going to be a case of uh, just trying to get to as good as it gets. Uh, But that means you have to know what as good as it gets is and that that requires answering the question what we, what can we expect from them and that's what i really tried to do and i and i did that you'd mentioned those perceptions before and i i did that in several ways the the, the first was by um you know looking at how the United States and a and the partner in question uh, prioritized and perceived both the terrorist threat in question uh, you know and other threats in relation to that to that terrorist threat and then also looking at how the partner perceived that terrorist threat in terms of both its usefulness and the threat so you can have terrorist groups that a partner sees as low, Utility, high threat. Well, they have a belligerent relationship, like the Egyptians do, and they are they are not going to need to be incentivized to conduct counterterrorism operations. So the United States do, does not have to worry about incentivizing Egypt. Sometimes we think, I think, in the United States that if the that, that if security assistance declines or the United States. Uh, you know, pressures Egypt too hard that Egypt, Egyptian counterterrorism operations are going to decline. And that's probably not the case. They're going to do it regardless because it's in their interests to do it. Um, that's a very different situation than the Pakistanis and the Haqqani network, where it's high usefulness to the state and low threat uh, unless the Pakistanis were to turn on the Haqqani network, uh, which is you know one of the most lethal arms of the Taliban insurgency in afghanistan and and try to to you know to to attack them, which the Pakistanis are not going to do because they don't want to turn what is a useful ally for them into a threat, and in that case, no amount of security assistance that the United States provides is going to change the Pakistani strategic calculus. Um, and then you have, you know, you have other situations where groups can be low threat and low utility, or high threat and high utility. You know what my students would refer to as frenemies, where you're again going to get different types of return on investment in terms of what you're providing with regards to security assistance and cooperation, or your use of soft power, or the allure of your relationship. And so the key is to recognize that these different permutations exist and also to recognize that counterterrorism is not a one-size-fits-all policy. Um, some of my academic colleagues, when I was writing the book, sort of pressed me to try to quantify that. They said, Stephen, can you rank you know, um, on a scale of one to three or one to five or one to ten you know what? You know how these partners are good or bad partners, and I said no, I couldn't do that because the United States doesn't want the same things from every country. Uh, every country does not have the same, uh, you know, the, the the same level of threat emanating from it in terms of terrorist groups. United um, you know, the United States is more prepared to use uh, coercion or incentives with some countries than with others, and so. It's also critical to recognize that when we talk about counterterrorism, we're talking about uh, is the partner conducting domestic counterterrorism operations? Uh, are these counterterrorism operations consistent or inconsistent? Are they sustainable uh, over time? Are they being done in accordance with laws of war? Uh, one would argue that the Egyptians, as you noted, are not. Um, you know, They are engaging in widespread human rights violations that's probably incubating the next generation of jihadists but that's just one bucket. A second bucket are those types of tactical cooperation that I referred to earlier, access, intelligence, cooperation, cooperation on detainees. Then you have a third bucket, which is cooperation on the regional sphere is a country contributing to a coalition. Is it helping to try to settle a, 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 a civil conflict uh, where terrorists are taking advantage of that strife uh, to embed themselves, you know, and and develop safe haven, or is it making that civil conflict worse, like the Saudis are doing in Yemen? And then you have a fourth category. You talked about those domestic issues before. Um, is a country engaging in the types of reforms necessary and the types of policies and programs necessary to reduce the risk factors for terrorism to begin with? Right, preventative measures um, that that go to keeping people from becoming radicalized and becoming terrorists. Those are all different forms of cooperation, and depending on those those threat perceptions, depending on the usefulness of the group, depending on a host of political factors. And I can't stress enough how inherently political counterterrorism and counterterrorism cooperation is. The United States is going to be able to to expect different things from different countries, and I and I go through and I posit propositions uh, in the book, of, you know some of which i've mentioned here but to a much more extensive uh nature and my point is that what the united states needs to do is it needs to recognize what it can expect from its partners and once it does that well now maybe you can be tougher on egypt in some areas because you're not so worried that they're going to stop uh conducting domestic counterterrorism operations and with the pakistanis you're not going to try to buy their cooperation against the Haqqanis because you recognize that that's not possible. And so you're not going to waste billions of dollars and years trying to do that um, and and build up expectations only to have them dashed and contribute to bitterness, bitterness in the relationship because you've assessed at the outset that that's not going to happen. And you've gone into this, um, you know, sort of with a, uh, you know, if you'll forgive, you know, a pop culture movie reference, sort of a a Godfather perspective on this, which is, it's just business; it's not personal.
0: <clears throat> Sorry, uh, I mean, you obviously you've seen this uh, in practical experience. It, governments uh, basically have a field of tension, over the United States in this case, in terms of. Uh, its broader policies, its broader values, and uh, simply what is realistically possible in terms of achieving a specific goal. But the question that, that arises in my mind, if that doesn't, in a sense, render counterterrorism uh, to being a Band-Aid solution, and what I mean by that is, there's no doubt post-2003, 2004, Saudi Arabia and the United States agreed on the priority of Al Qaeda. Al Qaeda was a threat, and it needed to be neutralized, if not destroyed. Let's say you—they had succeeded. The United, you know, so Al Qaeda had been wiped off to the face of the earth. Uh, the problem would still exist. So. At the same time, Saudi Arabia, in the 1980s, 1990s, was uh, supporting groups like Sibaya sahaba uh, which were virulently anti-Shiite, and attacking Shiites and Iranian targets. And until today, they are supporting the a more violent offshoot of the group, Lashkar-Jangvi, in Balochistan. And they've pumped enormous amounts of money into that. So, with other words... You saw, or you know, the Islamic State, which has been uh, seriously weakened, uh, but still is capable of launching all kinds of attacks. Uh, and so, the question really, really arises: whether counterterrorism is sort of like a firefighter—you put out this fi- fi- fire, but you're creating, or potentially uh, uh, creating another fire and keep on, keep on putting out these fires rather than trying to resolve a a fundamental problem.
1: Yeah. And there's, I think there's strong awareness of that in the counterterrorism policy and practitioner community that uh, the, A, I think there's, there's, there's an understandable, and I think it's right acceptance of the fact that, that you may never be able to, get rid of the problem entirely. I think this idea that the United States can defeat uh, terrorism and every terrorist group is, you know, very wrong headed. Uh, and and the key is doing enough to to keep US citizens and, you know, the United States safe and protect US interests and doing it in a way that also, you know, contributes to the overall security and stability of the countries with whom the United States is partnering. Um, keeping in mind that the United States has, you know, limited influence in some of these places and, you know, cannot, you know, if the United States could have convinced a lot of countries to engage in political reform or to change their policies, it would have by now. Um, but I think there's a recognition that, that, that this is not something that's ever going to to be entirely defeated, but that um, we we have we are probably too far to the side of um, of putting out fires, as you say, um, because even though the United States has not been attacked from abroad since nine eleven, uh, you know the problem has clearly grown and metastasized in in many different ways in many different places, and you've got plenty of countries that are less stable now than they were before. Um. And I think in terms of how the role that counterterrorism plays in that really depends in part on how one defines counterterrorism. And there's no agreement on that. For many people, I think counterterrorism has become this very Band-Aid-oriented, mechanistic, you know, thwart the plot, kill the bad guy, um you know, gather as much intel as you can. And those things are all important. Um, You know, plots need to be thwarted. And sometimes bad guys need to be killed. And intelligence is absolutely critical. And, you know, there's a lot that we need to be doing on the protection side and and hardening of physical infrastructure and things like that. But that's only going to keep the threat at bay. And and in some places, that's probably the most that, that can be hoped for. Because ultimately, the host nation is the decider of what goes on in its territory. Um, but I do believe that, that that the United States can get more out of its partners. Um, and I think part of that begins with recognizing that counterterrorism is fundamentally broader than, than we often think. And, and as I, you know, part of this is recognizing its political nature, but part of it is also recognizing that that. It's not as though everything has become counterterrorism and counterterrorism has become everything. It is to say that a lot of policies and programs that didn't used to touch on counterterrorism objectives now do. Promoting rule of law is not a new thing. The United States was promoting rule of law decades ago. Now that has counterterrorism connotations. Seeking access isn't a new thing. The United States was seeking military access decades ago, but now it has counterterrorism connotations. And, and I think one of the areas where the United States has fallen short has been to put too much pressure on those more narrow tactical mechanistic areas of counterterrorism, in part because they are easier to achieve. I write that in the book. They are easier to achieve. But also in part because cooperation in these areas is viewed as more critical in a short-term, uh, thwart the plot, kill the bad guy kind of way, right? And there are also these things are easier to measure. Access is easier to measure. Body counts are easier to measure. Um, but the United States has done that at the expense of longer-term objectives, uh, that you talk about right that the problem has not been uh, ameliorated and and I don't think that the united states can change saudi behavior or pakistani behavior or egyptian behavior but it can try to push in the right directions and too often pushing in the right directions i think has has given way to um to cooperating On areas where the United States can get cooperation, even if it doesn't need that cooperation as much as it thinks it does. And this goes to, I think, a culture of of both expediency, because politicians serve two or four-year terms, right, or in the Senate, six-year terms, Uh, and so you're looking for fast results, but also uh, exaggerated threat perceptions on the U.S. side, or at the very least, this idea that if it's a possible threat, then we have to treat it as an absolute threat because nobody wants to take risks and potentially have something blow up on their watch. And so there's a preference for short-term, hard security solutions, even if the threat doesn't necessarily warrant it, if there is a threat. And I think we're seeing that with the potential, uh, you know, move to go from unarmed, UAVs, unmanned aerial vehicles or drones in, uh, in, you know, at the base in Niger to arming those drones, right? Six months or a year ago, they were going to be unarmed drones. And now uh, four U.S. servicemen have been killed in an ambush. And now we need to have armed UAVs in Niger. Um, that's arguably an overreaction to the threat, but it's how the United States is going to respond because it's how the United States can easily respond.
0: I want to touch on two last things. One is Hamas, the Palestinian, Islamist Palestinian group in the Gaza Strip, obviously doesn't feature in your book, but in some ways it's indicative of the problem. I mean, with other words, there's no question about it. Hamas are not nice guys. But there's also little question about the fact that if one is ever going to come to an Israeli Palestinian uh solution then Hamas is going to have to be part of that and if you really if you read Hamas's position uh on some sort of arrangement with Israel the position fundamentally comes down to the demand for recognition of Israel as a precondition for negotiations has been tried it's been tried with Oslo it was tried with the process when Arafat uh, in 1988 recognized uh, uh, Israel, and 25, 30 years later, it hasn't produced anything. So the whole question then becomes also in terms of counter-terrorism uh, uh, a strategy, designating Hamas as a terrorist organization, cutting it off financially and economically, hasn't brought it to the table. And the question then is, you know, whether or not counterterrorism really has to not be embedded in far broader policies if it's really going to be effective. And the second issue I wanted to bring up, which is in your book, um, and, and you've alluded to in many ways during this conversation, which is that you've also, in a sense, had a paradigm shift with the end of the Cold War. So during the Cold War, it was black and white. It was all very... Very clear, whereas post Cold War, it's become much more complex and, in a sense, much more messy.
1: Yeah. Um. So let me take the Hamas one first, and and I'll have less to say on that just because I'm not a a Hamas expert, and so I I'm always leery of, wading too far in where, uh, you know, I don't have the the data and the on the ground experience to to support what I have to say, um. You know, I, I think this is certainly a case where if there was ever an example of counterterrorism being, you know, the, the politics of counterterrorism, it's U.S. policy towards Hamas. I, I think we can all agree that the current policies have not brought Hamas to the table um, and are unlikely to do so anytime soon. Uh, and, and, you know, one needs to look no farther than Europe to the, you know, to, to see, you know, I think legitimate disagreements um, over, over how to treat the group. Um, you know i i see hamas as a terrorist organization I, I believe that it is and i also believe that it is um you know the 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 elected or was elected to lead in gaza um you know this was part of the problem with the freedom agenda is you know you know that the united states was was pushing during the, the first years after 9-11 is you encourage elections and then you have to live with the outcome of those elections. And, you know, you have a legitimately elected government uh, in Hamas, which is also a terrorist organization, uh, which I think, you know, sort of, like I said, shows, throws into stark relief, the,
0: the political nature of this. Um, if I can throw something in here. Yeah. I mean, in a sense this goes back to whatever one thought of George W. Bush uh he fairly quickly after 9-11, uh, and that's what led to the freedom agenda and the democracy uh, project, which was when he recognized that 9-11 had occurred not just simply because of uh, Saudi support for Wahhabism, militancy, what have you, but also because the United States for uh, the longest period of time had opted for stability. Rather than political change that would lead to more uh, more free, more more liberal societies.
1: Yes, I, I and I think that he was not incorrect uh, in in diagnosing part of the problem. Uh, unfortunately, pushing democracy is not you know it, an immediate shift. To, an immediate shift to democracy is not necessarily the solution to that problem. There's there's a, a really strong body of research that shows that you that you don't want... that democratic transitions, when they happen, are often messy and violent, and that they're more prone to be messy and violent if you have not built a base uh, or a foundation first uh, of, of reasonable governance, adherence to rule of law, and things of that nature. Holding elections... Does not make a a country democratic I mean that is you know the, the, they, they you know they may be even free and fair elections you know that is not a strong democracy um, you know a strong democracy is a democracy that also has governance, that has rule of law, um, that has strong civilian institutions uh you know that is respectful of human rights, all of those things and there there was not a lot of that involved with the freedom agenda. Uh, there was also not a lot involved with with addressing, you know, many of the other, uh, you know, risk factors for 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 terrorism. Uh, so, you know, I, I I commend the, you know, the recognition of the need for political reform. But I thought that the the prescription for political reform was incomplete, and then of course the the approach to actually achieving that political reform was was not executed uniformly at all. Um, you know, there was some pressure on Egypt and then that pressure pretty much receded. Uh, the United States at no time tried to pressure Pakistan to hold free and fair elections uh, when it was, you know, being ruled by a military dictator who'd taken power in a coup uh, two years before nine eleven. Um, You know, there, there were plenty, you know, there were plenty of other places where the United States did not push that hard. Uh, and so, you know, again, I, I think you're absolutely right. That that Bush was correct to recognize the need to 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 rebalance that trade-off that was being made between stability and 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 values and political reform. I just I thought that the way it was gone about was you know w- was really f- incredibly far from perfect. And I, I thought the Obama administration got it a bit more right. Uh, and I should say for the record, I was at at the Department of Defense. Under Obama, but I was not a political appointee. I was there as an expert hire. so you know, I'm, I'm really trying to say this as much as a, as a scholar as anything, is that what, what the Obama administration, I thought did well was recognize the need not to push democracy so hard, rhetorically, but rather to quietly try to encourage uh, better governance, better rule of law, to create that foundation. But of course, that takes all of this takes years and years and years of commitment. And the United States, not under Bush and not under Obama, and certainly not under Donald Trump, has never prioritized these types of political reforms over other objectives with these countries, um, and has never stuck to one set of policies long enough uh, to achieve these these types of, of ends. So um, Yeah, I mean that's that's you know I think your point about the freedom agenda is is quite valid, but you know that's I I think those are some of the ways in which I would I would round that out. Uh, You know, back to Hamas, I you know I wouldn't have too much more um, to say there, uh, other than to say that I I think it's possible to both argue that that Hamas is a terrorist organization um, and to recognize that. Peace is not made with one's enemies, and then ultimately, if if there is to be any type of an Israeli Palestinian accord, which, you know, although I don't follow this closely, I am less and less confident of. Uh, not that I was ever all that uh, confident, um, you know. Other than I guess at a few a few high points when you one could be hopeful. Um, you know, it is it is going to revolve around. Uh, you know the, the the two you know two enemies engaging with one another, and one would hope that the United States would play a constructive role in that when the time comes. To your your other question or or, or note about the the big change in that paradigm shift since the Cold War. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I I would just say um, that that there's there's no question that a lot of these countries recognize that a terrorist threat exists but they they perceive that threat differently they often prioritize that threat differently than the united states has after the cold war ended the United States was without a security paradigm. 9 11 provided one, but it provided one for the United States. It did not provide one for a lot of these other countries. They were reacting to the US. They continued to face many of the other threats, internal or external or both, that they had faced before. And so, what the United States was seeking from them was both. More extensive in the counterterrorism space than the United States had ever sought from any country in terms of counterterrorism, and more extensive than what it had sought from these countries specifically during the Cold War when they were not frontline states—countries in Middle East, Africa, and South Asia, which are the case studies in the book: um, uh, Egypt, Algeria, Yemen, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Mali—all of which we've talked about, uh, to, you know, during during the last hour. Um, and so, you know, that lack of paradigm shift for these other countries was I think, you know, really critical and something that that was in some ways missed from a US perspective. Now, the US paradigm is beginning to shift. The latest National Defense Strategy states that the 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 main priority for the United States is great power competition with China and Russia uh, primarily and then secondarily with rogue regimes like Iran and North Korea terrorism is a another threat, but it is not the top threat. And as somebody who studies and works on terrorism and counterterrorism for a living, my response to that was, it's about time. Counterterrorism should not be the defining feature of the US security paradigm. It should, it should not drive US foreign policy. And I think this is an area where the United States actually can do less with more. But here I would say, if the United States is going to focus on great power competition, which it should, if it is going to focus on rogue regimes, which it should, it has not said it's going to focus on things like climate change, but it should um, then that means that the United States is actually going to have to rely even more on its partners than it has in the past, which you know I would argue you know to you know to to make a bid for, for, you know, for what I've said in the book that the United States is going to need to adopt a, a partner centric paradigm in terms of how it looks at counterterrorism cooperation to augment the threat centric paradigm that it al- already has, right? It already looks at things from a threat perspective. It is going to have to start looking at things from the partner's perspective as well. It's going to have to understand It's partners' perspectives, it's partners' perceptions, uh, it's partners' priorities if it is going to get more out of these partners, which the United States is going to have to do, because it it can't do CT on its own, and and it's going to need to rely on other countries as much, if not more, going forward than it has up to this point.
0: Stephen, your book is so rich that we could go on for another hour, Uh, and unfortunately, we've got about a minute and a half left. (laughs) Thank you very much for this. Uh, where are you going to go from now? What's your next project?
1: Sure. Well, very briefly, and James, it's been great to talk with you about this. Uh, very briefly, I've got a couple of new, new projects in the pipeline. Uh, one looks at how the United States could work more closely with its European uh, allies and other Western allies on counterterrorism in places like Middle East, Africa, and South Asia, where I think the United States could learn a lot from how some of these countries go about Viewing counterterrorism through more of a a holistic, fragile states perspective. Um, another project that I've got in the works, um, you know, looks at the changing nature of coalitions uh, and how new threats like terrorism, but also new threats from climate change and other things are changing uh, the ways in which the United States is going to need to cooperate with other countries um, and I've got some other, some other ideas in the works as well. But, but again, you know, going back to where we started, um, you know, I'm really enamored with some of these issues in terms of how threats have changed and how U.S. partner relations are changing uh, in, in the process.
0: Stephen, sounds like a great uh, uh, f- uh, future for, for your research. I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Look forward to having you again on the show once your next book is out. And wish you all the best. Thank you very much for having me, James. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, as the pleasure has been mine, let me just uh, turn off the recording.